Hello, everybody. Welcome to IntelliCast. It is Season 3, Episode 15. Joining me today is Producer Brian and Andrew DeSellis. Hey, guys. Hey, how are you? All right, how, how are you? you going? Man, so good. Three of us in three parts of the world right now, huh? Yep. <laughs> um, all of us a good 25 miles apart, probably. Um, this episode brought to you by EMI Research Solutions. Um, you can reach us at, oh man, um, EMI underscore research on Twitter and Intellicast1 on Twitter. And we have a phone number. I don't have the phone number with me. Do you know the phone number, Brian? Because I don't. I do. I do. It's 513-401-5463. You can also reach us at email at IntelliCast at EMI-RS.com. Thank you, sir. Um, today, we're um, not going to talk about coronavirus and the news. We have some special guests. It's Lindsay Bartell and Alex Miller. They're, they work at Brand Trust, um, which is a really cool company. Um, Andrew, um, we just did the interview a couple minutes ago. Any any thoughts on what you learned or anything that you'd like to share for the listeners? Oh, absolutely. What a great interview. Um, it's just some really smart people um, over there at Brain Trust. Really fascinating to kind of, you know, peek our heads out of the quant world, talk about the qual world, talk about kind of the fusion between the two. Um, you know, I've had the privilege of working with Brand Trust on a lot of these narrative inquiry studies, um, and it really kind of, you know, for all of us survey heads, uh, you know, get us to kind of stretch our perceptions and our capabilities. Um, I, I just, I love working with them, working with them in that space, and so being able to hear more about kind of the method behind the madness, um, what we can do with online qual, I think should hopefully be really valuable to all of our listeners. And I think we have, dare I say, one of the most interesting or perhaps at least unexpected print stories yet. Oh, absolutely. I was going to say, yeah, um, we did the a few P's with them and one of them was a print story. And yeah, the probably the most interesting print story we've ever had. So stick around to the end for the print story. We, um, by the way, I, I loved... I love when we have people on to talk about system one or system two thinking and, and behavioral science because it's something I just don't understand. And it's fascinating to me. And I love it that we have researchers on that can talk about it and how it lends itself to the whole research process, right? And so they do a good job of talking about what they do, which is pretty sophisticated. Um, and, you know, most of what they do is offline. And so they talk a lot about the the impact of the current situation and how thankfully they've been doing some work online in the same category in the same type of process similar process for quite a while so it should be a pretty seamless transition um they did do three p's by the way they gave us the top three movies all five of us so Lindsay and alex and then andrew and producer brian and myself also talked about our top three movies and the print story and we did a new p about pandemic which um just some kind of quirks about working from home and what's going on in the world of quarantine life. We talk about that kind of throughout the interview, but then again at the end. Um, but so no, no negative thoughts about quarantine. <laughs> right. We try to stay positive. That's, so the fourth P. that's the fourth P, keeping it positive. That's right. Fourth P is positive. So without any further ado, um, hopefully I'll send an interview with Lindsay Bartell and Alex Mellett of Brand Trust. Joining us now, Lindsay Bartell and Alex Millett of Brand, Brand Trust. Thanks for joining, guys. How are you? 
Doing great. Thanks for having us. Yeah, awesome. really excited to be here. Yeah, and um, Andrew DeSellos is joining us as well from EMI. Hey, Andrew. Good morning, Brian's. How are you? Oh, man, I'm great. There's five of us in five different locations. We'll see how this works, but it should be a fun um, podcast. I'm super excited to have Lindsay and Alex on, and um, thank you for joining. I know it's a crazy time in research, and um, maybe let's start off with maybe a little background of, of you guys. Uh, Lindsay, you're a senior analyst, um, and Alex, you're senior director of strategy and activation, which I'm really I'm really jealous of that job title, by the way. Um, Lindsay, uh, what's your what's your um, research background? Oh wow! Um, so I I guess I got started. Um, I studied decision science at Carnegie Mellon University, um, and I feel like most people's immediate follow up question to that is, "What the heck is that? What does that mean?" Right. <laughs> um, but it's pretty much exactly what it sounds like. So kind of focused on learning how to understand and improve like judgment and decision-making of people, organizations, things like that. Um, so a lot of behavioral economics was involved. And I think that's kind of where I first like started thinking about doing something in market research. Um, at the time, really didn't know much about qualitative research. I thought it was kind of all just like quant and stats and my right brain self was not happy about that. Yeah. Uh, so I guess kind of long story short, I like did some digging on my own, learned a little bit more about qualitative research, um, eventually learned about brand trust and our philosophy um, of like wanting to learn more about what drives people, kind of the whys behind the what's. Um, and then, yeah, I guess the rest is history. Been at Brand Trust for going on seven years now. Okay, awesome. And by the way, maybe for the listeners that aren't really sure what Brand Trust does, can you give a short kind of intro of Brand Trust? I know a little bit, but it'd be much better coming from you guys. <laughs> yeah. I I, yeah, I think Alex was um, kind of prepared to talk about that, so I'll let him dive in. Okay. I can talk a little bit about that, and it dovetails well with um, sort of my personal history as well. But Brand Trust has been around for about 20 years um, and uh, was um, founded by Daryl Travis, our CEO, um, who he actually um, had a successful career in advertising. And then he uh, started Brand Trust because he was like the 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 work, I don't know if work is going to be good or bad. I can say like, oh, I like that little song or I like that little ad, um, but I really don't know if it's going to be effective or not. And he began by thinking, well, what we need is better strategy. And uh, so he, for, he formed Brand Trust to be a brand strategy consultancy. And then he quickly learned that what actually, this, the problem wasn't the strategy. The problem was the insights that the strategy was based on. And he determined what we really need is to understand what's going on inside um, these, uh, this crazy construct called the human brain so that we can develop better strategies that can inform better creative that can actually, um, have an impact in the world. So, um, he kind of worked his way back from execution to strategy to insight. Um, and so for about the last 20 years, um, we've been delivering, um, uh, really, uh, you know, game-changing strategies powered by human truth and the human truth aspect is the research aspect. 
And uh, that's where um, we'll talk a lot more about this, I'm sure. But um, some of our proprietary methodologies like emotional and in- emotional inquiry and narrative inquiry, where we're really trying to dig into um, what people either don't or can't or won't tell you about what's really going on inside their um, their complicated, crazy little brains. Um, that's really cool. That's um I love it when I talk to people like you guys because y'all are so smart, and I love that there are just smart people doing really cool things in in, in marketing research. That's cool. Let's let's set the expectations a little lower. I like to set the <laughs> expectations low and then exceed them as the podcast goes on. Okay, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> the um, but the uh, I, so I I mentioned that that would dovetail well with my story. So I actually am a bit of an anomaly at Brand Trust. Most people, like Lindsay, um, come into Brand Trust early on in their career, not long out of school or maybe one or two jobs in um, and sort of become brand trust lifers. And uh, I joined brand trust full-time only a little over two years ago, but started consulting with brand trust about five years ago as um, the organization as a whole, including Daryl, our CEO, um, determined that the, the switch from, hey, how do we create better activations, executions, you know, things like that for brands. Um, oh, we need better strategy. Then we need better insights. We got so focused on the insights and became so well known for that, that we had lost some of the other um, aspects of what the company was originally founded on. So my history is actually in the world of brand strategy. Um, okay. I did about 10 years at, at um, a small brand consulting firm that was part of Publicis in New York. Um, and then did my own thing for a little while, um, had a little sort of sole proprietorship um, and that's when I was consulting with Brand Trust, and everything that I learned about Brand Trust, I was like, "Wow, I, I, I love everything about this. This is this is great stuff. These are smart people. These are great people to be with. Um, they're coming out with great insights that really can feed into great strategy." I've often joked that um, I like to think that over the course of my career, I've developed some some pretty solid brand strategies, but they've often been kind of weaving straw into gold, you know. Um, and that's never been the case when I was uh, working with Brand Trust because the insights are so um, golden, you know, in and of themselves that it's it's a lot easier to get to um, game changing strategies out of that. Um, so my history is a little bit different. Um, I've focused first on the strategy side, and of course, have because it's all so intertwined, um, have become uh, later in my life um, a, uh, a a market researcher as well. Awesome. That's that's really cool stuff. So, I'm curious about the the strategy. You you incorporate a lot of both qual and quant research. What what I would call qual and and quant research. Is that correct with your clients? Yeah, I mean, we're definitely qual first, um, and I would say that in the sense that. Um, we, I mean, we have a flagship methodology, which I guess I should, I should speak about here because it's kind of the foundation of a lot of other stuff called emotional inquiry. Um, but I would say even some of our other methodologies are all intended to be complementary to um, qual or finding ways to, de- to deliver qual insights at scale versus, um, you know, don't get me wrong, quant has its place certainly in many different places, but, um, you know, we base, that's not our focus area. Um, so I'll, I'll mention a little bit about emotional inquiry and Lindsay, you can definitely jump in. Um, I know you have, uh, you've been a practitioner of emotional inquiry much longer than I have been. Um, and then we can see where that leads us. But, um, emotional inquiry is simply the idea of one-on-one in-depth interviews between a highly trained researcher and a respondent who is, fits the target profile of the behaviorally. Um, especially, but also um, attitudinally, 
demographically, all those sorts of things of, um, of the topic you're trying to dig into. And these interviews are about 60 to 75 minutes long. And what they do is they focus on asking respondents to visualize moments in their personal experience that are relevant to the topic at hand. And then the interviewer unpacks them layer by layer, first beginning with a sort of trying to get the respondent into the, the physical memory of where they were, who they were with, what was going on, what did things look like, what did things smell like, what were they hearing, really trying to get them to re in, inhabit that moment, and then digging deeper, again, layer by layer into uh, what were you thinking in this moment? What was going on around you? What were you thinking? And then what were you feeling? And then ultimately, um, what does this tell you about this topic that we're digging into today? Um, what does this tell you about yourself and your relationship to this brand or this category? And rather than asking people a barrage of questions over the course of 60, 75 minutes, we only do about four to six of those visualizations in the entire interview. And it's all about digging into um, that moment um, to find out what it is that we're trying to understand. And as you can probably imagine, this all goes back to sort of system one, system two thinking, and the idea that um, people are not very good um, when they use their conscious brain about telling you what's really going on because we make our decisions sort of um, emotionally and in the area of our brain that we're not really, you know, we're, we're not really in touch with on, um, uh, deeply. And then we rationalize it with our conscious brain. And it's those rationalizations that we um, play back to um, interviewers, play back to researchers. And we don't pretend that we have a magic window into the non-conscious brain, but we do believe that our methodology helps respondents use their conscious brain to reveal bits and pieces, clues, signposts about what's really going on in the non-conscious brain. And um, so our methodology is really about that. It's about using um, what we know to be true of humans and the way that they um, construct meaning in the world to get a peek into um, what's really going on behind the curtain. Okay. Yeah. It's really pretty, uh, it's really pretty interesting when you're doing one of you're conducting one of these interviews, or you're listening to one of these emotional inquiry interviews, you'll hear respondents saying, Oh, wow, I didn't even know I thought that. Um, or, <laughs> you know, I never thought about it like that before. So it's things that they're not even necessarily conscious of that are really driving that, their behavior. Um, and that's always something that you know, we love to, to hear. Right. And Lindsay, um, this sounds really complicated when I think I'm a more of a quant person. And so I'm always impressed when there's this level of really strategic qualitative, I bet it is really challenging. You can't just go to a normal moderator training in order to do this technique. I'm assuming, I'm assuming that you have to have some pretty in-depth training to get to that level. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Our our researchers go through, you know, weeks and, and weeks of training before they're even, you know, put on as um, like a, a backup researcher on a project. So we'll have them do numerous um, different uh, little projects that, you know, uh, you can you can do online. You can kind of um, gauge if they're going to be a good fit. Um, once they pass that process, um, they pass that step, then maybe they'll do a couple um, phone phone calls with with everyone here, kind of understand them a little bit more, um, understand their background, understand how they're 
how, how good they are at processing different things that come out of the interviews. Um, and then eventually we'll, we'll put them on and, and they'll do maybe one or two interviews, um, on a project just to kind of get a feel for it. And then eventually they'll go on, um, to become a a full-time researcher. So we have, and I don't know, Alex, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. I think we have maybe eight or 10 researchers who are, um, you know, kind of our go-to, um, really well-trained, um, have been doing this for years and years and years, um, that we, that that's kind of our, our go-to pool of researchers and, and we're always trying to bring in more. Awesome. And so that's emotional inquiry. And that's, that's more, I guess, more traditional in-person one-on-one interviews. Is that in home or is that in your beautiful office or is that, how do you typically conduct those? We can do um, all kinds of different settings. We have, yes, in our, our office in Chicago, we can conduct them. Um, we also use, you know, market research facilities all across the country, all internationally as well. Um, we do do in homes. Uh, sometimes that's kind of a, a different methodology that we have called contextual inquiry, where we kind of go and do more ethnography-based research. Um, and we also have done things in stores uh, where we kind of follow people's shopping behaviors. So okay. we have a whole, <laughs> we can kind of do it anywhere. <laughs> okay. And speaking of doing it anywhere, um, especially under, to, under today's circumstances, um, you have another product. I think it's called Narrative Inquiry. I'd love to hear more about that, either Alex or Lindsay. Yeah. Lindsay, why don't you uh, go ahead and start? Sure. Yeah, I can speak to Narrative Inquiry. So, you know, we've been talking about emotional inquiry. That's really our bread and butter. Um, and we really wanted a way to kind of expand on that offering uh, that would allow us to do, let's call it like semi-deep dives um, that would be quicker and cheaper for our clients. Um, so started out, there were a few initial iterations of this methodology. Um, and you know everything that we do is based in storytelling and, and learning from the voice of the consumer. So uh, we knew that had to be the basis of narrative inquiry. So I'd say after, you know, maybe a year and a half, maybe two years of finessing and tweaking and um, figuring out what works really well, we finally got uh, narrative inquiry or NI as we sometimes <laughs> refer to it, just kind of shorten it. So I might might refer to it as NI um, that we kind of got it to where it is today, um, which is basically a a combination of open-ended, closed uh, questions in an online survey format. Um, so we'll have clients come to us with the objective of, again, understanding their consumer a little bit more or understanding what role their product or brand really plays in consumers' lives. So we develop a survey based on who they want to talk to, what they want to know. Um, and it usually consists of a few background screening questions, basically to make sure we're talking to the right people, of course. And then we'll ask them to recall and share two or three different stories with us. So sort of like that visualization process that Alex was mentioning before with emotional inquiry, um, you know, we're not able to have them really go as deep with this and and we can't have them kind of close their eyes and and type (laughs) as as we um, have them close their eyes with emotional inquiry. 
Um, but we do ask them to recall and, and share, you know, two or three different stories, different experiences uh, with us about certain moments that they've experienced with products or, or brands or kind of the category or whatever it is the client is um, trying to figure out. Awesome. And if, uh, I'm assuming you, have you found that some respondents are maybe giving you better information because of more of the anonymity of the situation when it's online or are there, is it, I'm assuming you've had lots of challenges as well, but that's kind of the world we're moving towards. Um, fortunately in some ways and unfortunately in other ways, but love to hear like maybe some um, best practices or something you've learned while, while going through this. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, go ahead, Alex. I, I can speak to that a little bit, only in the sense that I, I actually have an example coming to mind. But the one important thing that I think it's worth pointing out is that um, all of our methodologies are really about quality over quantity. So I think you you might, some of your listeners might be surprised to hear what a typical N is for an emotional inquiry project. We might be as few as um, 8 to 12 respondents per um, cohort, if there's, for example, multiple cohorts or multiple different audiences that want to be um, examined um, in a in a sort of full scale project, we'll have more like uh, fifteen to twenty four respondents per cell. Um, but we can get very very solid insights with only eight to twelve respondents per cell um, in emotional inquiry. Um, that math changes a little bit, as you can imagine, with narrative inquiry, because you don't have the opportunity to redirect people and try and make sure that the interview gets back on the right path. Right. Um, but still very small for, um, you know, online, I'm going to say call it scale methodologies versus quant methodologies. Um, but we're looking at only about usually 50 to 75 respondents per cell is pretty solid. We sometimes go as large as 100 to 150, again, for um it all depends on what some of it has to do with making sure the client feels comfortable right. with the, the number of, of, of respondents. Um, but with only 50 to 75, we can often get good, uh, really great stuff from narrative inquiry. And it all has to do with making sure that um, there's enough really great respondents that you can begin to see sort of little um, uh, little sparks of, of what might be the, the really important insights. And then that you can map that against um, patterns you're seeing in the larger number of respondents that even if they're not the most eloquent people and they're not writing, you know, um, beautiful essays about this moment that they remember the first time they encountered brand X, um, you're still seeing um, certain key words show up, certain key ideas show up. Um, and so we can actually get to great stuff with small um, numbers. And right. the, ex the example I had that is kind of funny, I, I don't think I can actually say the um, client's <laughs> names here, but let's just say um, one of the, um, you know, largest global um, soft drink brands and one of the largest global um, fast food chain brands, we were doing some work with them to understand the overlap between their two brands. And one of the challenges we have with narrative inquiry, as you might imagine, we usually have two to three of these, um, you know, open-end visualizations where we ask people to kind of play back in writing, um, typing on their keyboards, you know, these these key moments. We can only do two or three in the in narrative inquiry. Um, and one of the issues we have is we have to be careful that these things don't go on too long because you get respondent fatigue, right? One of the fascinating things about this study with two of these most beloved brands in the world, people were spending, we were aiming for a, a, a survey length of 20 to 25 minutes. People were spending 45 minutes plus 
on oh this survey, typing out their memories of being a child interacting with these brands. And it really just shows that people love stories. People love being able to chance to talk about themselves. When you combine that with brands that people love, the, the, the survey stuff kind of goes out the window, right? They, they actually right. are engaging with the methodology and they just want to tell their story. No, that's awesome. I think it, not to not to get too tangential either, but I think you know a large portion of our audience is uh, quantitative in nature, right? Just because EMI tends to dwell in that quant space. Um, and I had the pleasure of working on the study that Alex is referencing with him. And you know, we we always talk a lot about you know keeping length of interview low, um, you know, providing a. a in what our minds is a good respondent experience and so on and so forth. And in this particular project, just really, to me, it, it spoke absolute volumes about the level of respondent interest and engagement in the actual subject of a survey activity or the, you know, their, their affinity to, and, and, you know, I mean, Alex, you were just talking about like a deep emotional, rooted in childhood connection to these particular brands and the way that that can completely amp up the way that a respondent is interacting with a, a research tool, um, you know, is interacting with our research project in and of itself. Um, it, it was just, it truly blew me away uh, when we were doing this study together, you know, the level of, of quality and, and, you know, specifically the amount of time and, and depth and, you know, to some extent, the eloquence as well of the answers that we were receiving. Mm -hmm. it, it really just spoke volumes to the fact that, you know, people weren't saying, okay, you know, I'm being paid X dollars for X minutes of my time. You know, they spent almost double the amount of time, double or triple the word count that we had requested um, in this survey because it was something that was so interesting to them. Um, and not to jump too far out of what we're talking about, but you know, to directly apply it to the goings-on of the world, you know, I think that we see similar things going on with research as it pertains to the coronavirus and to current events and to you know, politics in any time. Right. That, you know, if we're working with something that is well known and is in the forefront of people's minds, um, people just want to be heard. Right. And, and people are excited about things that are exciting to them. And I think especially in our this is all, I'm sure, a very old hat to to you and Lindsay, Alex, but to, to us quant brain folks, I think that sometimes we can we can overlook that a little bit. Right. And we're immediately crunching numbers on response rates and dropout rates and respondent fatigue and things like that. But it's important to consider that the nature of what we're discussing in and of itself can be a massive driver for the conversion and for the quality of research. Yeah, agreed. <clears throat> Andrew, you touched on something that I'd love to touch on as well is the respondent quality. And I love it that companies like brand trust are kind of pushing um, online participants to do more. And I love it that you can get more out of people online. And I'm sure we could probably have an entire podcast on the challenges of um, respondent quality and especially how, how it um, relates to what they're trying to do, because it's integrally important that you get the right respondent um, 
any thoughts on the respondent experience or quality, Lindsay or Alex? Yeah, um, I mean, as Alex was saying, that that project really surprised us. That was one of the best qualities of um, responses I think that we've had so far. But you know, anything that we talk about, anything that we study in these surveys, um, I think I'm always pretty surprised um, at at the level of responses that we get. Um, you know, we, we have, like I said, there, there have been numerous iterations of this methodology. Um, and I think what we found works really well is part of the process is like we introduce, um, the respondent to, a quote unquote moderator. Um, and it's, it's just kind of a, a stock image of a person, um, with right. a, with a name, we give her a name of Emily, um, but, you know, then Emily talk kind of, uh, talks to them throughout the process and more or less encourages them says, you know, I'm, I'm really excited to read your stories. I'm really excited, um, about this. You're doing a great job. Um, and, and kind of, like I said, encourages them throughout the way. And I think that helps to kind of one combat that, um, fatigue, um, and also kind of makes it more personalized. So it feels like you're not talking or typing just into a computer. It makes it a little more like you're, you know, sharing a story with someone. Um, and I think that really helps with the level of responses that we get, um, just to make it a little more personalized, a little more humanized. I'm hoping that us quant people start stealing the best practices that the qual people have utilized and things like that, because we have so many challenges on our end and respondent engagement and respondent experience. And that's obviously that's, that's incredible that you're doing that with Emily and what a wholesome name. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I might've thought about that one for a little bit. I'm sure a bunch of researchers determining the name. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Which name, which name would be best? Let's put it into testing. (laughs) Um, Um, do you think um one one thought that i that occurred to me while we were thinking about this do you think that the timing of introducing narrative inquiry um you know is sort of key to its success right you know quant research is nothing new online quant research has been happening for over a decade easily um and i wonder if you know we kind of typically have this idea in our head of okay you know any kind of open-ended response will you know decrease quality and will increase respondent fatigue and you know keep it to three and make sure they're short form and things like that um but do you think that you know, as people become more and more comfortable online and as more and more people are working online and really to some extent with the, you know, intense advent of social media and online communities and things of that nature, you know, people are are really living online more than they ever have before. Um, you know, from the sort of quant qual hybrid world that you all live in at Brand Trust, you know, do you think that perhaps us quant heads over here, you know, maybe are are underestimating the affinity of people to really spend in-depth time and and, and in-depth emotion and investment in these types of exercises than they ever have been before. Um, I mean, is it, 
you know, this certainly all plays a factor into the success of hybrid methodologies, because I know, you know, typically if I, and I work in, um, in client services and sample sourcing consultant, consulting here at EMI. And if I had just received a request that said, Hey, we need people to answer these three open ends. We're asking for, you know, a hundred words each. We think it'll take 20 minutes, even though there's only five questions, you know, I would say, uh, yeah, let's not do this. Um, but but knowing what I did about brand trust, we gave it a try. And I think we've done probably about a, a dozen of these now. Um, and they just go really well. Um, yeah, and any thoughts on, on that? On, you know, um, is it time for us as an industry to sort of refocus on the viability of these methods and the value that they provide. I mean, I, I've just, again, I've been so um, impressed with and surprised by the level of depth of insights that we're able to get out of this particular methodology. Uh, that's wonderful to hear. Um, the short answer is yes, everyone should be focusing on this and they should be coming only to us for it. <laughs> brandtrust.com b-r-a-n no. <laughs> um, powered I, I, by EMI powered by yeah EMI. exactly no actually I was about to hat tip to you guys because I, I think it's worth pointing out a few things one is um, I think well first of all what Lindsay said is absolutely correct um, we as you probably heard from us sort of throwing around terms like system one and system two and non-conscious and stuff like that and um, Lindsay's educational background. We we are big fans of the behavioral sciences and and using um, them to not just um, help us understand people better, but help businesses be better. Um, and so we learned from our our knowledge of the behavioral sciences and applied that here. And there are things like the the fact that Emily is there, and there's a picture, and there's words of encouragement. There's other little tricks like. Um, a, 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 and I don't, not tricks in a bad way. I mean, tricks in a positive way. Like, um, we were, we let people know that the five, um, best five or 10 best stories are going to be, um, awarded an additional incentive and just little things like that to keep people engaged and keep people, um, feeling like they want to, um, be a part of this survey. And then the thing I was going to say about EMI, another component of this is just simply the interface. The fact that this is a, um, a completely adaptive interface that, um, you can easily take it and it looks good on a computer, on a tablet, on your phone, um, that there's no extraneous design. It's just, it's just very clear. Um, we use a funny little thing. We use a, um, a different font for when Emily is talking that's a little bit more sort of humanistic um, versus um, anything that's specifically an instruction, which is intended to look a little bit more technical. Um, all of those things are things that we can do wherever you are in the industry um, to make sure that an online survey um, is as human as it can be. Um, and I and and I think that's something that we really appreciate about appreciate about EMI is that um, you know respondents get that kind of experience. I think more broadly speaking, um, this is where I would go back to something that um, that Lindsay mentioned a few moments ago, which is the power of story. Um, Yes, it's true that people are more comfortable online. Yes, it's true that, um, you know, it's it's probably not as odd to take a survey on your phone today as it might have been five years ago. Um, but more than any of that is is just the the power of story to keep people engaged. Um, and I would say that any type of online methodology 
um, if you can find a way to help people feel like this is an opportunity for them to share their story, this is an opportunity um, for them to be a part of something um, that's more than just sort of answering a, a, a simple, you know, um, Likert scale, um, you know, series of questions. I think that everyone will be surprised at how eager humans are to share their humanity. Well said. Um, let's move on to, that's great stuff, by the way. I'm really impressed with it, you guys too. Um, and as you mentioned, if you want more information, you can go to brandtrust.com and um, I'm sure you can reach out to Lindsay or Alex for questions. Um, Let's move on to coronavirus. We can't go through an entire episode without talking about it. It's just top of all of our minds. Um, I know about, for me personally, it's pretty much all I can think about. Even when I come into work, you would think most people, a lot of people get to not think about it. But for our work and research, especially yours, which is a lot of qualitative, I'd love to kind of hear your your point of view on how it's impacted your day-to-day business and um, kind of what's going on in brand trust as it relates to this quarantining um, I can take a first run at that. And then Lindsay, I'd love for you to um, share more. Um, the first thing is that uh, we are a business that has always had a remote component. Um, we have uh, several remote workers. Lindsay is one of them. Um, we're, our main offices are in Chicago and Lindsay is based in Pittsburgh. So she can speak to it a little bit more personally. Um, so we did have a little bit of a head start there just in terms of our own internal processes. Um you know, we're, we're, we have a lot of digital platforms. Um, we, we use, we, we were, <laughs> I guess, an early adopter of Zoom now that everyone and their brother is using Zoom for every aspect of their, of their lives. Um, I, I, I had the fun experience over the weekend of not once, but twice using my professional Zoom account to host um, family game nights <laughs> awesome. with, with, uh, with folks um, just so we could uh, stay in touch with, uh, you know, friends and family. Um, so so we had that advantage, and and I think again, Lindsay can speak to this a little bit more. Um, but we are, are those of, of those brand trusters who were already remote have been able to help us um, sort of um, race up that that learning curve. It is a, a little bit weird for someone like me who's who's used to going into the office and um, who has a four year old and a six year old at home. I, I started off by trying to keep them away from you know, video calls. And now I just don't care anymore. I just let right. them come in and just like, Oh, you want to say hi? Say hi. Yeah, no problem. Right. Um, week, week three is when all the children and the dogs. I'm going to let them run the next conference call probably. Right. Um, but, uh, and then in terms of our methodologies, I mean, the good news here, you, what you guys said is absolutely correct. I think narrative inquiry is, is, um, is already, I'm um, having a bit of an upswing. We're seeing um, those, those projects are continuing with no, no issues. Um, uh, our emotional inquiry is something that we're very comfortable doing over the phone um, instead of in an in-person setting. Um, it's always been able to, to work both, both ways. Um, so those things are good. But I will say that um, one of the things, you know, we do a lot of work in pharma. Um, we have a, a, we're very um, category agnostic and we work across, you know, we'll be speaking to someone about diapers one day and financial services the next day and soda the next, you know, um, but I will say that we do a lot of um, pharma and that one thing we are trying to be very cognizant of um, is the, um, the, the uh, emotional and mental and even physical load that's on um, some of our um, healthcare practitioners today um, and yeah. people working across that industry. Um, so we've been very careful about that and making sure that we're um, always being cognizant of, of um, not just 
how that might impact the quality of the response, but just um, what should we be doing as humans, as good right. people to make sure that we're being part of the solution, not part of the problem. So there's some first thoughts, but Lindsay, as, as one of our longtime remote workers, I'd love to hear some of your thoughts. Yeah. Um, and, you know, everything that Alex said is completely true. Um, and yeah, I mean, not much has changed necessarily in terms of, you know, how I work since I typically, you know, do work remote. Um, I, I think it is interesting, though, just the we're, we're dealing with a, you know, a travel ban right now. We, we aren't allowed to travel um, or we're going to kind of revisit that as a company in, in May, I think we talked about. Um, so we're not traveling anywhere, which is always a huge part of um, what we do. I, I think before this happened, I was on the road for uh, seven weeks in a row when when we all had a call to set this up. I think I was in Bogota, Colombia. Right. Um, so, you know, that's something that I'm, you know, I, I, I feel like just me personally, I get a little antsy when I'm not playing. So that's been an adjustment, um, just kind of personally, but yeah, as Alex said, I, I think, you know, I, I've had some conversations with, with some of our colleagues about adjusting to working remote. Cause I've been doing this for about three years now. Um, so I've, I've had some conversations just you know, telling them that it, it's important to kind of set boundaries, make sure you're not, you know, responding to emails at 10 o'clock at night on the couch, even though it's easiest, uh, you know, it's easy to do that. So um, I feel like it's, you know, we're, we're all kind of working through it together. And, and we luckily do have quite a few other remote employees and um, we're able to kind of help out everyone else that this is, is new for. Awesome. Um I do think I've seen it in quantitative, and I'm sure this is true for qualitative as well. That I think respondents, when I say respondents, I mean people. Um, people are looking for other opportunities to do things um, now that they're working from home. And I think, kind of traditionally in research, respondents did it to kind of help brands and services, right? It was kind of almost like an altruistic value of their time. And I think that we're starting to see that emerge. A little bit here recently, we've seen an increase in response rates and we've seen an increase in quality of responses. And I'm hoping that's a trend that continues because it's so important that we grow research and it's important that we grow our respondent base. And so I think you're offering people an, a great opportunity just to kind of get away for a few minutes and make a couple bucks and express their opinions. And yes, of course, we're all going through different levels of anxiety, but I think this is super important stuff. So awesome job on that. We all do have a little bit more time on our hands. That's <laughs> right. for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, typically in our podcast, we have a research rant. And I have a feeling that just about any researcher, by the way, has a rant about something. Curious if either of you has a rant that you'd like to share for the week? Could be anything you want to complain about. Lindsay, is there anything you wanted to uh, vent about? Ooh, yeah. um, I mean, a lot of things, but <laughs> right. You wouldn't be in research if you weren't complaining about something. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know how I, I feel like more so in, um, yeah, I don't know if it's really research based, if I have anything to, Oh yeah. Non-research is fine too. Oh, okay. Um, I, I guess kind of a rant. Um, I am, Oh gosh. 
I'm very, very much into um, CrossFit and exercise and working out. And I haven't been able to go to oh. the gym for like three weeks. Um, and <laughs> oh, just, Lindsay, you can't travel. You can't do your CrossFit. I'm <laughs> worried for you. I'm having a really hard time here. <laughs> no, totally oh, kidding. <laughs> oh, but yeah. You, you probably got a lot of rants lined up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, so, that's a stress reliever too. I'm assuming is the crossfit, exactly, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess one one rant is I haven't touched a barbell for about two and a half weeks and kind of going a little stir crazy. <laughs> oh, I, I have a feeling that there's these home gyms are going to emerge out of people's garages. I'm starting to see it. I became oh, addicted yeah. to TikTok in the past couple of weeks. <laughs> I was never on TikTok, but I'm like, well, I've got some time. I might as well spend it on TikTok. And I've seen a lot of people like doing weird things in their garage and homes in terms of kind of using something for that energy they have. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I hope you're okay, Lindsay. I think we'll figure it out. <laughs> I'll um, get through it. I'll get through it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the next segment we like to do is the four P's. Let's we have some fun with our guests, and um, we take it from the marketing mix. Um, this week we have a few P's, and um, the first P is podium, and that is the top three movies. And Alex, do you have top three movies you'd like to share? I do have a top three movies. Um, the uh, I, I took one exactly one film class in my entire. <laughs> educational history um way back in the day we won't say how long <clears throat> um but during that I, I i had to actually come up with a list and, and it stuck with me for life it has actually not changed over the years um my number three movie is um full metal jacket stanley kubrick's uh vietnam opus if you will um my second one is uh rushmore um oh. And my third, my my number one movie of all time is Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Whoa, those are awesome! Whoa, I feel like you you maybe could have had a, a film career if you had wanted to. Those are good. I, that's nice of you to say. I have a feeling that I was actually funny. I was joking with a friend the other day that um, so many with so many bad screenplays are going to come out of this <laughs> three or four <laughs> yes. month period. Yes, everyone gonna, and their brother who thought, you know, I could have had a career. I could have been in the movies. Right. Everybody's writing around. bad screenplays yeah. about isolation right now. Exactly. <laughs> um, Lindsay, do you have any favorite movies you'd like to share? Um, yeah, I feel like mine is going to be a pretty crazy range here. Um, so <laughs> uh, third, I'm going to have to say would be The Departed. Oh, uh, that. Yep. That's a great uh, movie. Second would be The Princess Bride. Yeah. <laughs> and then first, I'm going to have to go with Heathers. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Heathers. That's awesome. All right. Andrew DeSellis, do you have any movies you'd like to share? I bet yours will be eclectic. Oh, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll see. And, Alex, I'm, I'm curious to um, hear what your opinions are on my top three. <laughs> um, so th these are uh, a little bit uh, just kind of my favorites. I never took a film class, um, but I like to think I'm a, a well-read critical individual. So we'll see how these go. Um, so my uh, third and unfortunately used to be my, my um, one of my favorites. And then it's kind of been dethroned a little bit is uh, V for Vendetta. If you are familiar with that movie, I um, studied political philosophy. And so it's kind of impossible for me to 
extricate some of the, you know, perhaps more campy action, if you will, from the uh, ideas going on in that movie. I just, I love it. I think the scene where um, V kind of launches into a monologue where every word starts with V just absolutely captivates me. Um, My second is uh, Moonrise Kingdom. If any of you have ever seen Moonrise Kingdom, um, it just, that movie is just delightful. I don't really have anything substantial from like a critical perspective to say about Moonrise Kingdom, um, but I just enjoy the hell out of watching that movie. Um, Wes Anderson movies on our collective lists. Yes, yes, there are, uh, and and, and well-deserved. and uh, my my first is uh, is Big Fish by Tim Burton. Um, I also love the book Big Fish. Um, but my great grandfather always said something, and, and Brian, um, being my coworker, can attest to the fact that I am prone to exaggeration and hyperbole. Um, but kind of a, a family saying that was passed down from my great-grandfather was to never ruin a good story with the truth. Um, and maybe it ties into a little bit with uh, with Brand Trust's focus on storytelling. And there's a little full, full circle for you. Um, but Big Fish has just always been so near and dear to my heart. Um, it's kind of about the story of a son reconnecting with his father while his father's on his deathbed and all of these just totally outlandish stories um, that he told through his life and maybe what is true and what is not. And does it matter? Um, and so th- those are my top three. For sure. oh, Andrew coming strong. Um, <laughs> excellent. All right, here's mine. And I can't believe you didn't go with this one, producer Brian. Um, first of all, Godfather, um, stepbrothers. I, I laugh every time at stepbrothers. Um, I'm really into Yelly's marble run, by the way, it's not a movie, but it's on YouTube. And I really got into that. And then I'm going to mention Tiger King. Um, oh my gosh. King is oh. Have y'all watched Tiger King? We have to talk about Tiger I, King. I only have one episode left, so please don't, don't ruin oh, those it. One episode left. I'm not done either. I'm not done either. Okay. We'll save Tiger King for next time, but I'm glad y'all are watching it. It's, it's out of control. We've already, producer Brian and I already talked about it today. It's mind bending. I just, every, every character that's introduced is more interesting than the last. Yes. Yes. <laughs> It's unbelievable. Um, what what good timing for that to be released too? Yeah, I, I saw a meme, uh, and it was you know someone like whispering to President Trump, and he said, you know, Mr. President, the people are becoming restless. What should we do? <laughs> release the Tiger documentary, Tiger King. <laughs> yes, my wife is, finds it hard to believe that I'm watching you know a, a tiger a zookeeper with all these shenanigans. It's really unbelievable that we're addicted to it, but that's, that's society. Um, next P I'm hoping someone has a print story. Does anyone have a print story? We haven't done this segment in a while. And sometimes I throw people off by this segment, but it's one of my favorite segments. <laughs> I, I do have a print story. It is not, it is not prints. It, it's not really to prints as an individual. I'm sorry to say I never had the, uh, the good fortune of meeting Prince, but, um, and if I tell this story, I'm now never going to be able to tell my parents about this podcast. But, uh, <laughs> um, so, uh, when I was, uh, 16, I think, um, I, I was a big, uh, I was a big Prince fan. Uh, my girlfriend at the time and I were both big Prince fans. 
and Graffiti Bridge came out in the movie theater. I don't know if you guys know about these things, but once there were movie theaters where you went to a location <laughs> to watch oh, wow. a film on a screen. Yeah, it With was wild. People. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I was, I, I must have been 16 because I had my um, driver's permit, but I was restricted in where I could go. I was living, this is when I lived um, with my, I was living in Boston at the time. Um, and so my girlfriend at the time and I hatched this plan that I was going to drive into Boston to a theater where it was playing, where Graffiti Bridge was playing. Didn't make my top three movies, you might have mentioned, you might have noticed, <laughs> yeah. by the way. Um, but this wasn't about, this wasn't about critical success or anything. This was right. about getting a chance to see uh, Prince's new movie in the theater. Um, and so we drove in to Boston illegally to see the movie. And as I was parking to go into the theater, um, I don't remember exactly how this happened, but somehow I got hit by a taxi cab. Oh my and, God. And so it was not, a, no, everyone was fine. It was no big deal, but this created a huge problem. As you can imagine, I was in a location I was not supposed to be with someone I was not supposed to be with to go watch this movie. And um, so we hatched this whole thing where um, I said that it had happened in the um, parking lot of a T station that was out by where I was allowed to be T, sorry, T being the, the um, public transit transit in Boston, um, where I was allowed to be at the time. And so was able to report the whole thing into insurance that way so that I, A, didn't get in trouble with the insurance company, B, didn't get in trouble with my parents, unfortunately did not get to see Graffiti Bridge. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, but anyway, so that happened. That's awesome. I When we started this segment, I never thought we would have had a Graffiti Bridge story as a print mm -hmm. story. That is amazing. Um I watched Under the Cherry Moon not too long ago, but those are the yeah. obscure principles. That's awesome. Yeah, have uh, you, have you seen Graffiti Bridge since then? Have you finally I, seen it? I, I saw it when it, like, I think when it came out on video, I probably went to like a blockbuster. Um, another thing that many of our listeners will not be familiar with, but, uh, um, but it was not memorable. I could not tell you two things about Graffiti yeah. Bridge. And, and I would just say to, to everyone if you do want to watch a Prince movie, please watch Purple Rain and you can leave Under the Cherry Moon and Graffiti Bridge um, <laughs> on the shelf, so to speak. Yes. Um, man, we only have a couple of minutes left. We're going long, but I'd love to hear if you have any funny. The next P is a new one that we just started, Pandemic. And um, what, what funny things, do you have any funny stories with your family, your coworkers, or you during the pandemic and during quarantine? Is a, I bet Lindsay has a, a bunch of them, but I, if you, either of you have a couple quick ones. Um, I, I think the funniest thing for me, at least, is that my dog is now very confused when I leave. Yeah. Um, I, I went to go outside for a run the other day, and he just stood at the door and you know, actually got in front of me to go out the door because he was like, what? You you don't leave me anymore. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> uh, so he's loving that I'm home. Um, but yeah, really, really doesn't like it whenever I leave him now. He's a little confused. <laughs> yeah, mine as well. Any other funny pandemic stories? I don't have anything all that all that funny. I I would the one thing we have started. I, I started a thing called the um, half hour happy hour um, that we host uh, on Thursdays at four thirty. Um, I open up a Zoom video chat, and uh, anyone any brand truster is welcome to join and 
uh, really the only rule is you have to have a cocktail with you <laughs> and, um, and any, you know, all topics are open. Uh, you may not talk about work is the one thing you must have a cocktail. You may not talk about work and we just have a half hour where everyone can sort of connect and vent, um, and things like that. We, we saw a coworkers, uh, chickens the other day we met on the half hour, <laughs> half hour, happy hour last week. We met, um, the chickens of, of one of our, one of our brand trusters. So that was kind of interesting. That's awesome. Who knows what this week will bring? Right, it's hard to top chickens. Mm. Um, I think we're I think we're out of time. I've, we, we've gone long, and I apologize for that. But um, Lindsay and Alex, I really appreciate you all joining. If if you all want to learn more about Brand Trust, please go to brandtrust.com. Is there anything else you'd like to promote, either of you guys? No, that's that's really it. Um, we're we're um, you know we'd love to help anyone out with any of the questions that they have around sort of what are people really thinking. Um, and I'd also just like to thank EMI for being a great partner on um, narrative inquiry has been really exciting for us, um, these past couple of years as we've tried to, um, sort of formalize it and, uh, get all the rough edges knocked off and get it out there in the market. Um, and we just really appreciate EMI as a partner for that because, uh, some of the studies we've done with you guys have been really wonderful. Well, we appreciate you guys as well. And, um, please, if you like more information from Lindsay or Alex, go to brandtrust.com. Thanks guys. Appreciate it. Thanks everyone. Thanks, guys. Thank you. So, hey, thanks again to Lindsay and Alex of Brand Trust for joining us. Um, I hope that the listeners that are still on really enjoyed the interview. I think it was great, um, kind of how we we set it up. Super smart people, really cool company. Andrew and I got to actually visit their office. We didn't even talk about that, Andrew. One of the more oh beautiful offices I've ever seen on North Michigan Avenue. It wasn't that long ago. Yeah, I would say easily top three offices that I have ever been in. Um, yeah. Gorgeous. Can we can we get some photos of that in the show notes or something? Uh, do we get pictures? We can probably find oh, some. I've pictures. got I've got pictures. Oh, awesome! Yeah, def- definitely. So yeah, it's on Michigan Avenue. Um, I think right by the river in the Wrigley Building, a few blocks from the lake. But you can kind of oversee the Navy Pier out into the lake, and it's pretty high up. I don't know what maybe twentieth floor. And so just an amazing view of their building where they do a lot of their research. And so it was kind of, it was really cool to kind of be there in person. And so I guess we'll end it. We'll probably do a second episode this week. And if you have any feedback, please let us know. Um, you can reach us at uh, in telecast one. <laughs> What's the email? How do you contact us, Brian? Yeah. At Intelecast at EMI-RS.com on Twitter, either at, at EMI underscore research or Intelecast one or leave us a voicemail or text us at 513-401-5463. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. See you next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.